This this is the Impressions Exchange Podcast. Impressions Exchange Podcast. Where all topics impacting the graphic imaging and printing industry are addressed via in-depth news coverage, analysis, and timely interviews. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Impressions Exchange Podcast. I'm Ashley Roberts, Managing Editor of the Printing and Packaging Group at NAPCO Media. First up, I am so pleased to welcome my colleague, Dan Marks, Senior Content Editor at NAPCO Media, as a guest host for this episode. He explores what it's like being a caregiver and a full-time employee, speaking from his own personal experiences. He had an open and candid discussion with Carrie Thompson, Marketing Specialist at MUTO, about the challenges of being a caregiver and a full-time employee, and how employers can show support for their caregiver employees. Following Dan and Carrie's discussion, I speak with Adrian Harrison, Vice President of Human Relations Consulting at Printing United Alliance, about why it's important for employers to consider the needs of their caregiver employees, what companies can do to help balance their responsibilities, and how better policies could help bring back some of the caregiver employees who were lost during the pandemic. Thanks, Ashley. This is not a discussion about autism, but it factors heavily here. As a disability, autism is a changing force among many that can profoundly alter the paths and the priorities of dedicated employees. This discussion addresses the personal and professional challenges of career path professionals who find themselves also to be caregivers for the long haul. A bit of background, professionally, I'm a senior content editor at NAPCO Media, writing and creating content for printing-focused publications. Personally, my wife and I are parents to a charming 16-year-old boy who has autism. Since his diagnosis nearly 13 years ago, our lives have changed in innumerable ways. Our connections to parenting have become prolonged and deeply involved, and work and life are often harder to compartmentalize. Being a caregiver can take a toll on a career. According to a 2018 study published in the journal Pediatrics, Nearly 15% of families with children with chronic conditions, including autism, epilepsy, and cerebral palsy, have scaled back their participation in the workplace. For families of children with intellectual disabilities, that figure jumps to 40%. Outside of the workplace, stress is high, divorce rates are higher than average, and the responsibilities for caregiving are more likely to fall to women. While it's likely that all of us at some point in our lives will serve as caregivers, helping a spouse or child recover from surgery, assisting a parent as they near life's end, helping the surviving parent manage life alone, as profoundly important as those roles are, however, they are also temporary. For caregivers assisting a person with permanent developmental or physical disabilities, life can be a marathon that includes caring for the person as long as you physically can, while planning for their future when you are gone. So amid the challenges of a profound labor shortage, what does it take to keep parent caregivers engaged? And how can employers accommodate the prolonged caregiving responsibilities of some employees without putting a damper on their career growth? How is it possible, and it is, for employers to allow for dual responsibilities when employees are expected to be all in? To explore this reality, and how her responsibility as a caregiver has affected her path is uh, Carrie Thompson, Marketing Specialist at MUTO. Welcome, Carrie. Hi. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Hey, thanks for being here. Can you tell me a little bit about your son? Um, my son's name is Connor. He's actually going to be 13 on the 19th of December. And he was diagnosed um, at the age of two with being at risk for autism. 
they recommended intensive therapy and then to have him reevaluated. Um, he went through physical therapy, speech therapy, developmental, all the good stuff for a full year, was reevaluated again at three. Then he got the official autism diagnosis. At the age of mm -hmm. six, he got the diagnosis for apraxia because he was still nonverbal. Um, Connor sure. attends a specified autism school and they strictly deal with kids with autism. Um, he has thrived. He does adaptive sports. He does soccer and baseball and bowling and he loves to cook. Um, he's becoming quite um, active with uh, joke telling. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he's, <laughs> okay. he's, he's becoming... Uh, quite the little teenager uh last summer that's great he actually dropped his uh nonverbal diagnosis wow okay um yeah. a little bit about my son uh for this discussion i'm i'm moderating but i'm also uh, a panelist uh, my son julian is 16 years old um he got his diagnosis around age three um <clears throat> and was um speaking at the time uh by age five or so, he had uh, lost that ability and is now non-speaking. Um, he is a high school student in general education uh, here where we live and is a junior and is on a path to graduate, which we are thrilled about and is interested in moving forward um, uh, toward college. So, and I will say that a lot of that is done with, with a great deal of support. So I'd like to ask you, let's start by talking about uh, sort of the moment when your life changed, um, when you sort of realized that your path forward was going to be different than maybe you thought it was going to be um, beca because of having a, a child with a disability. What was that adjustment like for you? And did you fear for your career path? Um, I, I did a little bit. Uh, when he was diagnosed being at risk and they said intensive therapy, I was like, what exactly does that mean? Um, you know, after they went through the, the process for that and the state came out and we got state services and they said, okay, he needs this and this and this, this many days a week. And it's going to take this, this much support. I'm like, all right, so how am I going to fit that into my schedule? You know, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, I had just started thinking about putting him into daycare, you know, let alone that plus, you know, all of these therapies. So, yeah, I was a little bit concerned, um, about, my career and, and how it was going to affect my job. Uh, my boss at the time uh, was absolutely amazing, 100% supportive, whatever you need. You know, having uh, a support system, not just personally, but professionally as well, has um, allowed me to be the mom that I needed for Connor. And um, yeah. yeah, so it's helped a lot. Now, um, when um, his diagnosis was coming forward, when you were kind of going through this period of adjustment, um, <clears throat> were you sort of, you know, um, out to the world with that news or, uh, because I know from my standpoint, I kind of didn't share it with anybody and I kind of kept it a secret and, um, I don't think that worked really well for me at first. Um, so mm -hmm. what, what was your experience with that? Um, well, when he was evaluated and we came home, I probably hibernated underneath the covers for about two or three days. And finally, uh, I said, you know what, this is not helping anybody. Um, I got up and I started looking through all the literature and everything that the psychologist had given us, found some stuff for Autism Speaks and the Autism Society, signed up for everything that I possibly could. And um, the next thing I know, somebody from Autism Speaks calls me and says, hey, I see you signed up for the walk. And I was like, yes. Mm -hmm. And from that phone call, 
and I don't normally answer phone calls that I don't recognize. And this one I did. Sure. And that phone call lasted about 45 minutes and it changed my life because from that point on, um, I've been a hundred percent gung ho on getting him the therapy he needs, the support he needs and spreading the word to everybody else that would listen to me about how important mm -hmm. early intervention is. Um, you know, you need to do the early intervention. You need to make sure that you get your, at least get evaluated, um, you know, and that kind of thing. But ever since then, um, we have uh, a public Facebook page that documents our journey and he's got thousands mm -hmm. and thousands of followers, which I never expected. I only did that to keep family in the loop, you know? And next thing I know, he's got 30,000 people following him. I was like, wow, you know? And I hear all the time from families about, you know, A, it's, it's good to hear, it's very inspirational. I never expected that. So I was 100% on board about getting his diagnosis out there because in my mm -hmm. eyes, education is key, so. Yeah, I think from a, a, a sort of personal and professional standpoint, I, I think it was not really until I started <clears throat> being uh, more out and honest with what was going on um, on that side of my life that I was able to kind of get a hold of things. Um, professionally, mm -hmm. it was very difficult for me. Um, I really was um, failing for a while. And it wasn't until I came out and just said, this is going on in my life, this is very difficult, um, that support started coming my way. And I think that was um, uh, kind of a huge change for me. Um, how do you think um, your professional life is different today because of what you've learned from this experience and, and, and your role as a caregiver? Oh, gosh. Um, I, I think, one, I've learned a lot more patience. <laughs> you know, having a child with autism who is nonverbal for as many years as he has been, you know, trying to understand mm -hmm. what he's saying without him actually saying it. Um, you learn to pick up on verbal, on um, not verbal cues, but physical cues. You learn to pick up a lot right. more on facial expressions. Um, just having patience for people and understanding. And also the simple fact that you don't know what's going on when they leave your building. You know, you don't know that yeah. they're driving an hour and a half to just to get home through rush hour traffic to hurry up and rush to get to therapy. You don't know, mm -hmm. you know, that they're going home to a child who's having a meltdown. So having that knowledge in the back of my head, it's given me a lot more empathy for people that I work with, people that work for me, um, just to kind of understand, hey, you don't know what's going on. Right. I think that's that's really um, um, astute because everybody sort of is on their own path. Um, and mm -hmm. as you said, you don't know what people are going through. Um, and um, I think personally, I've, I've become a lot less judgmental of people. Um, oh, definitely. And realizing I, I, I don't know what's going on with them. And, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and that's okay. People can have a bad day. People can have a bad week. And, yep. um, you know, it, it's not the end of the world. So yeah. um, have you, can you give an example of a time when it's been really difficult to balance caregiver needs with professional needs? Um, well, ironically, right now, it's a little bit difficult. Um, obviously, COVID didn't help matters, you mm -hmm. know, um, having to, you know, manage a, a child who has a lot of uh, time using an iPad just to talk. And then all of a sudden, he's got to use an iPad to do therapy from afar. You know, that was a little bit different. Right. Um, but trying to help manage that and 
be at home while working and, you know, managing school plus therapies and work all at the same time when it's just you and your kid locked up in a house for a year and a half, you know, that was, that was extremely difficult, Mm -hmm. but, um, you know, sadly my mom passed away, uh, just a few months ago in July, she helped a lot with picking him up from school and getting him to therapies. So that's one less person that I now have. Um, my dad took care of my mom while she was ill. So I wasn't mm-hmm. able to utilize him as well. So that was down two people. And one of his main therapists right. just had a baby. So I was down three people. So I'm now finding as he's getting older, it's more, yeah. more responsibility on me and my support system is still there, but physically they're dwindling, mm-hmm. you know? So it's a little bit, it's a little bit harder right now. Um, I'm very lucky in the sense that Muto has um, embraced that, that need that I have right now. And they've allowed me to work from home for a couple of days, um, even though everybody else is back in the office. So um, the admin at Muto has been awesome and very supportive of that. Yeah. Uh, You know, for me, I think one of the things that was was the most profound was um, going back to 2017 when I was able to become a a full-time remote employee. Um, I think within my family unit, between my wife and I, there was a lot of um, inequity. Um, I was in an office all day. She has worked from home for a very long time. And a lot of that onus fell on her to get him to therapies, to get him here, to get him there, to pick him up mm-hmm. from school, to drop him off, all that stuff. And and it felt unequal um, for her. It felt unequal for me. And because of the ability for us both to work remotely and to manage um, his life as we need to has been um, hugely hugely helpful um for um an employee let's say you know we're both employees of companies who is uh maybe has a young child two three they're just realizing um the example we're using in this podcast is is autism but they're realizing that that something is going on uh with their child they're realizing their future role as a caregiver uh perhaps for the longer term um what advice would you have for that person both personally and, and in terms of how they might approach it professionally? Um, well, personally, um, I have a lot of resources simply because of the fact that I did a lot of volunteer work from day one when we first got his diagnosis. <laughs> so um, I've got a lot of networking uh, people here locally. So, um, I mean, fortunately or unfortunately, however you want to look at it, over the last several years, I have had, you know, you know, people that have worked for me, people that I've worked with have come to me and said, Hey, I think my child might be on the spectrum. You know, what are the signs? Sure. What do I do? Um, but because of those, mm-hmm. um, those networking aspects that I have had in the volunteer work, um, I've, I've actually now taken a position. I'm the vice president of the autism society of greater Phoenix here locally. So I have those networking, you know, resources as well. So I will point them to all of the local networks that we have. Mm-hmm. Even, even if they're from afar, I'll say, you need to get tap in to your local Autism Society, Autism Speaks, you know, all of the local areas that you have because they're gonna have groups that you can talk to and doctors that um, specialize in this and help with that and support groups. So having that mm-hmm. network or having resources like that is crucial. So I always recommend the Autism Society and, and those kind of groups to those people. As far as professionally, my biggest advice to them is to be 100% honest with your employer. 
let them know what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, let them know because if they think that you're slacking off just because you're slacking off um, and it's right. not something a little bit more serious, like what we're having to try and deal with a, an evaluation here and a doctor's appointment there and neurological this, they don't know. And again, they're assuming. So it's always important mm -hmm. to talk to your employer and let them know hundred percent, this is what's going on. Yeah. I think that was important for me as well. I think there was an emotional toll, <clears throat> excuse me, that was taken that, that really made it difficult to, um, um, to stay engaged and to, to just have that support, um, from work to have somebody come in and say, how are you doing today? What mm -hmm. have you heard? What have you learned? How's your son doing? Um, yep. made a huge difference than sort of suffering in silence and trying to hope nobody noticed. Um, yeah. so why don't we flip that question around a little bit? Um, and in your opinion, what can employers and bosses and managers do to accommodate employees who discover they're going to be uh, caregivers of, to somebody with a disability? Um, well, one, I think maybe showing a little empathy and sympathy, you know, to the situation, um, having the ability to work from home, um, leave early one day, come in late one day, come in on a weekend and make up some time, just basic flexibility in your schedule is, is, is huge. I mean, that to me, like I said, yeah. with Mucho, yeah. they've been absolutely amazing with that. And I don't know what I would have done without that flexibility you know, um, sure, but sure. Just, just simply having, having the knowledge and having the flexibility and understanding that, you know, occasionally things are going to come up. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. I feel it, um, kind of as though the, the sort of recent drive to more workplace flexibility that has been brought forth by, by the COVID-19 pandemic has been, um, kind of a valuable test case, uh, for managers who, um, maybe didn't see work from home as a possibility for anybody, didn't believe it could be uh, a viable option. Um, do you think um, the pandemic has sort of helped with that case that people can be productive remotely? Definitely. I highly do, yes. Um, I mean, I know several companies, not just the one that I work with, but several that have always said, no, you can't work from home because, you know, we don't know what you're doing at home and you're probably just napping and eating bonbons and watching soap operas, you know, <laughs> right. that doesn't happen, you know, yeah. and, and I found myself working more at home than I did when I go into the office. Now, granted, it's mm -hmm. a longer drive and I'm in the car most of the time, but I find to be more productive because I'm not having to drive that, that drive to the office. Um, you know, I just find it more productive, but I definitely think that employers, um, businesses now are seeing the, the benefits of that. Yeah. And I think one of the discussions we've been sort of having, you know, with um, labor challenges um, that the printing industry and other industries are facing, you know, uh, looking at um, models of hiring people who have a disability, maybe um, they are unable to get to the office, but they can be hired as remote workers. Um, uh, it could relate to different hours, but there are accommodations there that can take advantage of people's skills, abilities, passions, um, and still, um, you know, fit in with the requirements of their, of, of their disability. Um, a question I have here, I know you've been involved in the Facebook group and uh, Autism Society. Can you speak a little bit more about sort of your activism? Um, and I guess what I'm getting at with this is like, how is it? Um, changed your philosophy in life and 
Um, how has it changed the way you approach things and, and seeing um, disability as a, as a priority in life? Um, well, I think anytime anybody's diagnosed with any kind of disability, that kind of takes priority over anything else because that's going to make a change in your life. Um, you know, having, having the, the tools that I've had over the last 11 years, just with the networking first mm -hmm. with the Autism Speaks and then with the Autism Society, having those tools and meeting those people and finding that, you know, that cliche tribe that people talk about. I mean, it is truly right. a thing and, you know, having that support and, um, and just that, that the, the basic educational aspect of it, because I can't tell you how many mm -hmm. times, you know, in a month we get, I mean, me personally, and, you know, with the organization, my child was just diagnosed. What do I do? You know, right. um, my child was just yeah. diagnosed. My husband wants nothing to do with it. What do I do? Um, my child was just diagnosed. I need to find a school for him. What do I do? Mm -hmm. You know, so knowing that we've kind of already gone through all those steps, you know, it, it definitely yeah. helps and allows that advocacy part to kind of kick in. Yeah, I, I personally, um, I ran for a number of years, a, a dad's group. Um, that was mostly uh, fathers um, who were kind of wrestling with, uh, you know, uh, adjusting their lives to accommodate mm -hmm. having a, a child with autism. Um, and it was it was very helpful. And I think from um, our family standpoint, one of the things we've always uh, been about is including our son in to society every way we possibly can. Um, yep. So that includes being in the schools, being in the restaurants, being on airplanes, going out, living life to the fullest and not having, um, well, I, I think um, being a caregiver for somebody with a disability can be a very isolating um, uh, reality. And I think mm -hmm. one of the things we've been able to do is um, minimize that isolation, take advantage of all the capabilities our son has and try to forge not only a good life for ourselves, but for both my wife and I, a satisfying career and, you know, a good life for our son. So, yeah, you know, I think it takes all of those things together to really um, make it work. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if you have any comment on that. No, I 100% agree. Um, having, you know, having a child on the autism spectrum is not easy. Having a child with any disability is not easy. You know, like I said, it, it definitely, as yeah. soon as you hear those words from the doctor, it's an immediate switch and it, it changes your life forever. Um, what yeah. the path that you thought you were going to be going on, you're still on that same path, but all of a sudden you've got a million different branches that have just branched off and you got to figure out, all right, do I go to that one or do I go to that one? And I got to go to this mm -hmm. one, but yeah. it takes a longer way. You know, so um, I 100% I agree with, with everything that you said. I know with my son, um, he too, we've always tried to do everything we possibly could getting him out in the community. You know, whether it's with the adaptive mm -hmm. sports, with the city, um, you know, just getting him into different groups, that kind of thing. But if we don't try it, we're basically keeping him in a bubble, you know? And yeah. if he tries it and doesn't like it, I'm fine with it. You know, whether it's a food, whether sure. it's a sport or an activity. Um, yeah, I, th there's no other way to say it, but you got to get them out there. Well, Carrie, you. thanks so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate you uh, asking me to be here. I, I love talking about my kid and anything about autism. Me too. Thank you so much. 
Make sure you stick around for my discussion with Adrian for some insights and strategies and how you can better support your caregiver employees. All right, Adrian, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Ashley. I always enjoy talking to you. Yes, and I'm so glad to have you back on our podcast. Um, so we just uh, listened to Dan and Carrie. Um, they had a, a great discussion about caregivers, caregivers in the workforce. Um, so I wanted to get your input um, and, and talk to you, you know, why is it important for employers to think about and consider the needs of their caregiver employees? Well, for one, um, empathy is probably the greatest gift you can give your employees. So I'll just have that be the running through line of everything else that I say later in the podcast. But being empathetic will win your people um, trust. It'll win your people's uh, loyalty and it will go really, really far to lifting up morale. So empathy. Putting that aside, I think it's very important to consider caregiving because we don't have enough people to work in our facilities. We just don't have enough workers. And so caregiving options and assist with caregiving and keeping caregiving in mind when you're creating positions or revising positions, I think will open up the number of potential candidates to fill positions. So that's one. And the second thing is, it's going to keep people longer. You're going to retain employees because they're going to be so grateful that you take into consideration these really essential parts of life and caregiving. And then I think also um, it's just really important um, if you want a diverse workforce, you can achieve more diversity by considering caregiving as you um, plan your um, workflow and your scheduling and things like that. Because caregiving largely falls on women and people who um, don't pay or can't pay for caregiving. Um, And those people who don't pay or can't pay tend to be um, people of color. So you're going to improve both the number of women that are in your workforce and the number of people of color in your workforce if you have excellent caregiving considerations built into your jobs. Right, right. So it sounds like, I mean, there are just these ripple effects from providing, uh, you know, some a little bit more support for for people in those in those positions. And some of the things that you mentioned, um, you know, thinking about when you're developing a role or when you're hiring, um, thinking about how you can um, better support people who are caregivers. So that was something Dan and Carrie um, talked about. So Dan asked her, you know, about some of the things that employers could do to support caregivers. And Carrie mentioned empathy and working from home and flexibility in the schedule as well as some other things. So could you talk through some of those things from an employer standpoint? What can companies do to better balance those responsibilities with caregiver employees? Absolutely. Everything Carrie said is 100% accurate in my mind. Um, Look, it doesn't have to be the way it's always been, right? It doesn't have to be eight-hour shifts, you know, two or three shifts a day, five days a week, and um, positions that you know, you can take only a half day off or full days off. You can't take two hour increments off. So here are some of the, you know, top ways that I think you can make your workplace more flexible to allow caregivers to have a role there. The first thing would be to consider flexibility in scheduling your shifts. I have been talking about this for a while. I would suggest 
that um, caregiving is really hard on weekends because caregivers need coverage and there isn't as much coverage on weekends. So if you schedule four tens and break those into five hour shifts and maybe change the timing of your shift. So your first shift doesn't start till eight rather than seven. You could probably tip into a decent amount of caregivers as a potential workforce. So four tens also means that you can schedule your overtime for Fridays. And then all overtime is on Fridays. You can probably grab a lot of those caregivers who could not work on a Saturday for overtime, but they can give you overtime on a, on a Friday. So four tens in five hour blocks, shifting your start times and doing all overtime on Fridays. That's a big one. Second thing to consider would be building in part-time positions. How many of those positions could be split into two parts? Because caregiving doesn't necessarily have to be an all-day thing. Some people need to go to doctor's appointments or be you know, taking care of their kids at certain points of the day. Whereas you know, if you have elder care and that person has to go to physical therapy every day from eight till 10, well, that leaves the rest of your day free if you take your elderly parent or you know spouse or whatever it is to that appointment, and then you could be working. But the jobs aren't built that way. So if you build in some part-time positions, you can grab up people who have part of their day to give and want to give and want to work. Um, another thing to consider is job sharing. So the difference between part-time and job sharing is that Part-time is a standalone position, and you can hire a bunch of people to do that standalone position. Job sharing is a single position that two people will have certain responsibilities that are their own and certain responsibilities that are shared. So it's like a Venn diagram, right? Um, you could look at positions like a CSR position or something like that, where it could be a job share rather than a part-time. So you have coverage the whole day, but it's different people giving you the coverage. Also the flexibility in those positions of working days of the week and other days not working. So a part-time position could be a Monday, Wednesday, Friday person and a Tuesday, Thursday person, or it could be a mornings person and an afternoon person each day. So just be creative, see what works best for your workflow and your production, but also, you know, ask your workforce, ask people just in your area, it might be different than someone else's area, find out how it could be better. So those are the first steps and they're not super hard to implement, but those are the first steps. There are next suggestions I have that are a little harder to implement, but I think have very long-term rewards. That would be incorporating caregiving into your facility. If you have a big enough place, and you have enough workers in your region that um, if there's a child care crisis in your region, and P.S., there's a child care crisis in almost every region of the United States right now, um, maybe you could develop a little daycare facility in or next to your facility. And then that way, your workers can just come to work with their children, drop their children off at the let's for lack of a better word, let's say preschool, and then pick them up when they finish their shift and take them home. I can 10 out of 10 
people with young children will pick that option over another option that is equal in every other way, but doesn't have that. So you're going to win the race to get employees and keep employees if you do something like that. The other, another, uh, here's another simple thing that I think I referenced, but I'll be more clear about. Um, don't require four hour or full day days off for responsibilities that are related to caregiving. So if your person that you're taking care of needs to go get a, a shot or is sick and needs to see a doctor, that's a two hour hitch. That's not a whole day hitch. And all of their PTO is gonna be gone very quickly if that's how you divvy out your PTO. So break up your PTO blocks into smaller amounts. And I know that makes production harder. I know that. <laughs> I'm sure HR people are like, oh, you've just made my life harder. But, but isn't it really hard when you don't have anybody to work at all? So right. maybe we need to meet people halfway and do the things that we need to do to get them in the door and show that empathy that we talked about yep. um, so that they can balance both their personal responsibilities and professional responsibilities. Right, right. I love, I love some of the um, the ideas that you brought up, especially job sharing, which isn't something that I have ever really heard of or or thought about. But I think it's, I mean, it's a brilliant way to to you know offer that flexibility. Um, so, a question that just came to mind um, based on some of the things you just talked about is that, you know, there might be some companies listening right now thinking like, oh, I can't, I can't implement all of those things. Um, so, you know, looking at the first steps, the ones that you talked about first, um, what's, you know, what's the best way to, to start and to approach it? Like what, how, how should a company say, all right, I'm going to start trying to be a little more flexible. Yeah. All right. So it's, if, so it's, um, first you got to plan it and you can roll it out over time. Um, and implementation, requires, you just have to follow through. So if you tell your employees, we are implementing some new policies that will make caregiving easier, they will be patient with you if they know you're actually going to do it, right? So the easiest one of all is the, the splitting PTO up into smaller bites. That's, that's the easiest one. The second one is harder, but considering your start and end times of your shifts, even if you're going to stick with eight hour shifts and they're going to go five days a week and, you know, you don't want to do the four tenths split into fives, think about what time your shifts start and think about how that affects caregiving, because there are people who can drop off the elderly person they're um, taking care of at a adult daycare, for lack of a better word, that's really like a fun opportunity for these adults, right? It's stimulating. They get to have time out of their homes. and But the drop-off isn't until 7. Well, if your shift starts at 7, you're not going to be able to do both of those things. So maybe you should start your shifts later. Um, same with kids. Once you put them on the school bus, it's about six and a half hours before you see them again. So maybe you can get coverage later in the day for somebody to get your child off the bus, but you can't get that kind of coverage usually in the mornings. So if you start shifts later to allow for these morning routines to be implemented, then you might scoop up more people and retain more people. So that that's not that hard to do, shifting your time. So those are the first 
easy ones. And that's great. And I think that goes back to, you know, goes back to what you said with, you know, talk to your employees, talk to your employees, talk to find out, you know, regionally, um, you know, the, the trends or when people, when schools start or what, whatever the, the, you know, factors may yeah. be, but I think talking to your employees and finding out what they need is a great way to go about it. Yeah. And, and it honestly, it just shows that even asking the question shows that you care. Right. So if you ask the question, you do the analysis and you figure out, I really can't do hardly any of these things. I can do a couple little things, but I can't do a lot because you're a small shop or you're constrained by your own scheduling or, you know, whatever it is. Um, the fact that you asked and that you considered it, that also kind of goes to boost morale. People mm-hmm. want to be heard and they want to see some transparency in what happens behind those doors that, you know, really affects their lives. I mean, I, I do think that, let me, let me in, insert another sort of philosophical element to this, which is we all felt a total lack of control when the pandemic hit. I mean, every single person in the United States, and if not the world, really felt the the sands shifting under our feet and there was nothing we could do about it. And that lack of control is very destabilizing. So we are in many ways, and you can see this play out across many areas of life, are seeking control. We are seeking to have and regain some control over our lives. And that goes to the transparency that companies have with their employees, because employees want to feel they have, even if they have a voice, then that gives the idea that there is some control over their destiny, their schedule, their professional lives. And so just as a side note, philosophical point, I do think that consider that element of control and sharing information a little more than maybe you did pre-pandemic or during the pandemic um, because people really want to feel like they're they know what's going on that that sands aren't shifting and that they can um, plan and have at least some knowledge of what's happening in their lives right right and and actually I'm glad you brought up um the pandemic, even though I, I don't <laughs> like talking about it, um, no. as most people probably don't um, at this point. But um, you know, Carrie and Dan discussed um, the hardship of managing caregiving during the pandemic, working from home, um, and both said they were fortunate enough to have supportive working conditions. Um, but something that you mentioned to me prior to our conversation is that many caregivers have not returned to the workforce after the pandemic. Um, so could you, could, could better policies help bring back some of those workers and, and what would those policies look like? Well, gosh, you know, pull the string and I'll talk forever on this one, but let me just say this in the world of um, first world nations, the United States is woefully, woefully behind in its policies that affect caregiving and supporting children, alert, the elderly and the vulnerable. So you know, and, and look, that's not me and that's not a political statement. That That's just a fact. I mean, that is just a fact. And it is talked about, but not really acted on. And I don't know um, what the future holds there. But of course, if there were more policies at a federal or state level, because these can be state level policies, absolutely. They do not have to be federal policies. But if there were policies that built in more 
caregiving friendly things and financial support and things like that, then yeah, I mean, absolutely. When Dan and Carrie talked, they talked about um, their children who are on the autism spectrum. And I don't think people understand if you're not in a position um, of caregiving for a special needs person, uh, how incredibly difficult it is. And it's not without joy, but it also has a lot of stress. And so there's psychological stress, there's emotional stress, there's time stress, there's all the stress. And any policies that are built in that can relieve some of that stress because you have created a thing where there's caregivers that are paid high wages and therefore would not be experiencing a dramatic uh, uh lessening of caregiving opportunities, particularly since the pandemic, right? It's gone way down. Look, the pandemic, <laughs> caregivers were paid horribly before the pandemic compared to, you know, other positions, which is crazy because they're taking care of people that we love. It's the most vulnerable and important things to us. And yet we don't pay very much money for that service. Well, now because of post-pandemic, getting people back, competition for workers, caregivers aren't going back to these low-paid positions, and there's very few caregivers. So if there was nationally subsidized caregiving or state-subsidized caregiving, then a lot of people could go back to work and would joyfully go back to work, um, but they can't and they don't because there isn't. Um, I don't know. Did that answer your question? It did. It did. I mean, it seems like there are things that could be done. It's just probably a, a long road to get to those options. Well, I think as with most things, as long as we don't have to pay attention to things, and this can be the kettle boiling on the stove um, right up to childcare, right? And everything in between. It's like mm -hmm. that pinging you here in your car. You just keep driving your car because you don't really think about it until the car breaks down on the side of the road and then you have to go fix it. Right. And it costs a lot more to fix it then. That's what where we are with caregiving, right? It is the thing that we have been able to work around through substandard policies and a booming economy. But when everything changed and destabilized with the pandemic, the pinging in the car got to be a big loud clanking. And now the car is breaking down on the side of the road. And we are getting to a point where we're very close to being forced to make changes in how society approaches these things. Right, right. And I mean, this is, you know, on a much different scale, but it makes me think about, um, you know, I've, I've read a lot about how the pandemic um, changed the way people approach work, not necessarily caregivers, but how they approach work and, and making more time for work-life balance and spending time Absolutely. with friends because the pandemic kind of also forced us to think about what was important and realize that, you know, we need to prioritize things. So I feel like with caregiving, it's a, a similar situation. I mean, you know, 100%. we're not going to- Everything you said, I agree with completely. I think that's right. And look, I'm at a stage of my life where unfortunately um, people get sick a lot more than they did when I was in my 20s, right? My peer group gets sick or dies. And 
there is this big shifting of sands again um, that happens, which is what, why am I doing this? What, what am I doing? Why is this worthwhile? Why, you know, so you reprioritize. And I think when people um, see their elderly parents in a, a fragile and vulnerable state, it's like, well, wait, what's more important? Taking care of, you know, this person that I love that cared for me or going to work? And 10 out of 10, well, 8 out of 10 are going to pick caring for the elderly person that's vulnerable and fragile. You, you know, people who have children, all of a sudden, I mean, you've heard it a thousand times, like everything changed in my life, everything changed in my mm -hmm. life, right? It does. And all of a sudden, you're looking at this small human who relies on you literally for every single thing. And you're like, oh, okay, well... I can't just, you know, push this one off to the side. This is my priority now, not my job, you know? So, yeah, I mean, everything changed. And now it's not just people with young children and people who are caring for vulnerable and fragile um, dependents. It is everybody. It's every new college grad that's laden with debt who doesn't want to live that way, wants to see the world wants to go plant a garden, wants to go bike ride across the, you know, uh, America or whatever it is. Everybody has reprioritized. And, you know, don't kid yourself. 10 years from now, this stuff won't be nearly as frontal in our brains, right? But it is now and we need workers now. It's like make a change and you will see the benefit. And if you continue down the path, if you show good intent of constantly keeping open to the ideas of how the workplace can better match the needs of the workers, you are going to do better in both um, recruiting people to work for you and retaining them and winning their loyalty and trust. That That's how it plays out. Beautifully said. I think that was very well said. And I am, I'm so grateful that uh, you could take some time to speak with me today. Um, and I hope to have you back on another episode. Absolutely. Have me back anytime. I love talking to you. Yeah, Thanks, thank Ashley. You. Likewise. The Alliance's Adrian Harrison is instrumental in assisting members and the industry at large on a variety of HR issues, including those discussed today. She can be reached at aharrison at printing.org or by calling Printing United Alliance offices at 888-385-3588. I will include that contact information below. If you are interested in learning more about support for programs mentioned in today's podcast, Printing United Alliance has extensive resources and subject matter experts available to you. Visit www.printing.org to learn more. I want to thank Dan and Carrie for sharing their own experiences with being a caregiver in this industry. And I'd also like to thank Adrian for joining me on the episode. And of course, thank you to all of you, our listeners. Stay tuned for the next episode of Impressions Exchange Podcast.